Hey, welcome to this episode of One Dive at a Time. I'm your host, Rob Anderson, the founder and director of Neptune Warrior, where our mission is healing heroes one dive at a time. We'll get into it in a minute, but today we're going to talk about dive anxiety. And since we are an organization that works a lot with people with all kinds of anxiety, you think, why diving? Why would why would diving be good for someone who has anxiety and is claustrophobic and doesn't like a lot of gear on them? Hey, I don't know. It, it, it works. And I think it's the methodology that myself and my leaders use to slowly introduce and integrate somebody into the aquatic environment. There are so many positive things that happen with water and specifically happen with scuba diving. And then when we when we add that along with doing hyperbaric treatments, now, by the way, I've verified what we do is hyperbaric therapy through Idaho hyperbarics. So we've worked very closely with Jeff out there on our hyperbaric protocols. And by the way, I need to do a podcast with them. That is an incredible experience to sit in a hyperbaric chamber with six to eight of your favorite friends and you can feel your voice I don't know if it actually does change, but at least it feels like it's changing. But to go down to 90 to 100 feet and get narked out, stay dry, and just that whole experience. But I just know it works. I understand maybe a small part of the science of it, but I know that the things that we do with our divers with anxiety, with PTSD, with depression... And we see the results, we get those results verified, and it's just, I, I'm incredibly lucky to be surrounded by a really strong team of people who directly support, and then people who get in the water with me, people who are willing to talk to me about the science. But we are going to talk about anxiety and diving, because, you know, not everybody is hundred percent comfortable when they get in the water and I think it's just a patience level that all of our leaders have between our dive masters and our instructors and I know that this is something that from day one we've instilled I mean I've got a girl across the street and I've, and I've shared this out on Instagram who has Down syndrome and Downs is like the least likely person that would ever put their face in the water. And yet I've got her breathing compressed air underwater. She has the mind of about a four or five year old. And under very closely supervised, very, very closely supervised circumstances, I've got her putting her face in the water, breathing compressed air, blowing bubbles. And she loves it. Man, we made such a huge celebration out of just that one little event of her doing that. And it's been cool because, you know, we've hooked her up with dive shirts and, and we, you know, we call her a diver. And, man, she loves it. I just love seeing the smiles on her face. But it's that, in fact, one of her, her caretakers is a dive master. And she, and she told us, she's like, I never, ever would have thought that you would have got Allie's face in the water. And it's, it's, been, it's been a lot of fun. 
hey, a quick update on what's going on with my sinuses, my ears, all that kind of stuff, right? Because you guys have been privy to that that information. I did go to an ENT today. I highly recommend Dr. Don Beasley in Boise. He got his start in ENT because of a dive accident when he was 14. So it had a little bit of an influence on him. And he was just, I don't like doctors up in my face. And even when I go to the dentist, I have to be put under the, you know, you know, I've got to suck down some gases there, you know, to, uh, I've got to get a little narked myself to just have somebody in my face. And he was really good, was, was able to probe in my ears, uh, put a, put a scope down my, or up my nose and back down through my sinuses and all like that. So what's going to happen is two procedures. One, well, first of all, I've got a really, really bad sinus infection. They call it a chronic sinus infection. In other words, it's been there for a really long time. So I've got that going on. I've got blocked or closed eustachian tube. Now, I can still clear my ears. My right ear has always been a little slow. And he's like, I can't even see the eardrum pop when, when you do it. But I'm like, I can feel it. And it, and it is clearing. So we think it's, it's closed uh, or partially closed or almost closed. And so we've got that going on. So there's a couple procedures that they're going to do. One is that they're going to, uh, from the, what I can tell is that they're going to put a balloon into my sinuses and they're going to expand it by seven, I believe you said seven millimeters. My gosh, I hope it's not seven centimeters. That's a lot. But I think seven, seven millimeters is what he said he could actually expand it out to. So that will, that will provide better clearing. And then... In 1988, I know the day that I got my nose broke. In fact, it's out there on YouTube. It's when I was part of an emergency services team. That is the Air Force equivalent of a SWAT or hostage release team. We're doing some training with the British commandos. And right there on Armed Forces Network, as they're videoing it, I get my nose broke by one of my teammates as we're doing close hand or uh, hand-to-hand or close quarter combat training as what the Brits called it. So ever since then, I've had this deviated septum. Maybe I should go to the VA and talk to them about that deviated septum thing going on. Uh, but anyway, I'm going to get, I'm going to get that fixed. I'm going to get the eustachian tubes fixed. So that's where I'm at. Also in local, I guess local happenings is, you know, unfortunately we still have someone who fell off of, of a jet ski right close to the, the area that we do a lot of diving in over towards Barclay Bay up on Lucky Peak. And it looks like that Ada County has decided to terminate the the search form. And right now Facebook is popping up still. I think I talked about this the other day on a podcast. But Facebook is popping up with dropping names of divers and people volunteering to dive. And I think it's great that the dive community wants to get involved. But I got to tell you, I mean, guys, I'm not going to tell you not to do it, all right? But I got to tell you that you need to make sure that you physically safeguard yourself because the area that I feel that he might be in is pretty deep. And then the second one, just the psychological aspect of finding someone. And that's all I'm going to say about it. But but I, I keep seeing people that want to volunteer or, or there's things like, you know, don't they have underwater drones? And, uh, you know, names will pop up of divers. Hey, you're a diver. Why don't you go search? And, I mean, there's a lot to 
recovering someone. I've been out on dive missions, and I think I shared with you, I've never found, I've, I've, I've been on body recovery missions, I've never been the guy who found the body. And I'm, I'm 100% okay with that. I have pulled someone out of the water who had expired, still tried CPR on him, was never able to recover him. And that has stayed with me since the day it happened. And so just, I mean, if you're going to do it, I'm not going to sway you off. I'm just going to say, hey, be careful. Uh, for those of you who are trying to bring divers in and coax divers in and you don't know anything about diving, you guys need to beg off. You guys just need to, you know, to shut the hell up because if you are not a diver and you don't know about diving and if you don't know about public safety diving and you're talking about underwater drones and calling your friends out to go, look, man, you got, you guys are putting people in danger. And that's all I'm going to say about it. All right. Okay. So let's get into this part about anxiety and what, and I'm going to talk about the mechanics of what happened with anxiety. And then I'm going to talk about. I don't know, six, seven, eight things that I recommend for divers who have anxiety. Now, I, don't, I won't certify anybody who's anxious about the water. However, I do know that there are people that when they go into a different type of environment or they get into different dive conditions or maybe it's been a while since they've been diving or all of a sudden they're in low vis or it's deep or whatever, anxiety levels can creep up. So I want to talk mainly about people who are thinking about getting into diving people who are anxious about getting into diving or people who are stu- you know, currently students. Or maybe, maybe you're one of those divers that did get certified by somebody who overlooked your anxiety and they certified you. But if, if you come through me, if you come through John, if you come through Sarah, if you work with any of my dive masters, they are not going to recommend certification if you are an anxious diver. Just not going to happen. So, you know, let me, let me, talk about anxiety and, and really what it is and, and what happens and you know kind of how it, it it presents itself because it's it's not fun and and as we work with our divers who do have anxiety and talk about oh my gosh I would never get you know get in the water guys I have got a 100% rate to date of getting divers who say that they're anxious about the water of getting them in and getting them into either breathe or maybe later on getting them into certification. So, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that aspect. We've talked about what anxiety is in the past. But, you know, we're going to talk more about what is the amygdala hijack. Amygdala hijack is basically where your brain takes over. You've got this fight, flight, freeze response in the amygdala. It's the part of the brain that has kept us alive for millions of years. Okay, it's, it's that reactionary mechanism. Animals have it. You're driving down the road. You know, up here we have deer that hop out on the road, and then they just look at you. They freeze, and that's because that a deer, it's, its protective nature is to freeze at first because if it runs, then any type of an animal that has a flight response, in other words, like a bear or a mountain lion, when that deer runs away, it will chase it down kill it and eat it so when the deer jumps out in front of a bright-eyed monster your car oftentimes the first reaction is to freeze then you stop and you're like hey deer get out of the way and then you'll notice that oftentimes it slowly trots away 
looking back at you out of the corner of its eyes. And that's because it doesn't want you to chase it down and kill it and eat it. We have the same type of response. I mean, if somebody throws a rock at you, you duck. So you can have an amygdala hijack. We'll go back in, into driving. I was driving back from Hoodsport this week, and I watched this happen in front of me. So the amygdala takes over. Somebody, two cars are driving along. Guy in the right-hand lane starts drifting over to the guy in the left-hand lane. Suddenly, the guy in the left-hand lane jerks really hard, jerks the car, jerks the car over because he thought the other guy was coming into his lane. Well, actually, the guy was coming into his lane. That's an amygdala hijack. It saved his life. Now, let's imagine that there had been a motorcycle to the left of the driver who jerked his car left or another car. What would happen? That amygdala hijack would have caused another accident. So an amygdala hijack is all about, about protecting. About protecting yourself. So the best way to prevent an amygdala hijack is really first understand what things trigger the reaction so you can avoid them. Now, you can use practices like mindfulness. As a matter of fact, a lot of my divers, when I put them in the water for the first time, I have them just relax in the water and look down at the water and, and just feel what the water is like up against their body. And then we'll put the regulator in and then we'll slowly start to go in progressive stages until I finally have them underwater with a mask on. But things like mindfulness will help you better control your body's response when you feel that reaction, that fight-or-flight stress. Emotional, mental, or even physical stress can trigger the amygdala's fight-or-flight response. What we have our divers do is that when they begin to feel those symptoms of that amygdala hijack, we just ask them to take note of what they're feeling, will process that experience, and what led to that moment if they can recognize any body changes that they're experiencing. So, for example, holding the breath or maybe breathing faster. Also, we're going to ask them what, consider, you know, what they consider to be the cause that, that triggered those feelings. And they will usually fall in the same general categories. Might be stress, might be anger, might be aggression, might be something in the past. I've got divers, or I have a diver whose grandmother tried to drown her in the bathtub. I have a diver who nearly drowned in the ocean. And so we talk about those feelings and we talk about the safety mechanisms that we have around, around us and we slowly get them introduced. So all those are, are the beginning steps of mindfulness. And with mindfulness, what it does is it aids you to be more present and engaged in the responses and the choices that you make. And it's through mindfulness that you can take stock of things like how you're feeling and what's stimulating you. And then you can learn to respond rationally and logically. And this is another way of you just saying that you can take control away from your amygdala and hand it back to your frontal cortex. Now what we do, that is, for those of you who've been through the program or some of the things that we've done, that is key to what we do as far as healing heroes one dive at a time is that we're taking those reaction mechanisms out of the amygdala and we're putting them up into the frontal cortex. So for example, when you can't find your cell phone, I've got more than one diver 
that goes berserk when they can't find their cell phone. For me, it's been my wallet. Now, if you've been in the military, what does that equate to? That you've lost a valuable piece of equipment. Maybe you misplaced your weapon. Maybe you misplaced your radio. Maybe you misplaced CEOIs, your code keys. But when I can start teaching that in the water and transition that back to not blowing up or, or freaking out, we can slowly start making progress. But it takes practice. And it's easy to wonder in your thoughts when you first try to focus on your body and your feelings. But if I can teach somebody to focus on those feelings as I'm introducing them into the water or I'm putting them into more stressful situations like removing a BCD and putting it back on, maybe you're removing a BCD, putting a t-shirt on, which means that you have to pull the regulator out of your mouth and replace it, then we can start working towards healing with things like losing a cell phone or somebody getting upset with you or getting in your face or crowds. It is the path that starts leading towards that other healing. Because if I can teach you to be mindful about what happens in the water, I can teach you to be mindful about what happens outside of the water. But it's not going to come easy, and it's, it's those practices that you have to, you, you have to practice those techniques on a regular basis. And not just when you're in a, in a highly emotional state. Learning to practice mindfulness when you're not, you know, when the amygdala is not firing, hey, get out of here, get out of here, fight back, you know, freeze, whatever, right? You have to practice those things when things are calm. That's why in the water, even though in most certification courses, you'll go through and you'll practice mask removal, you'll practice regulator recovery, you'll practice uh, ditching and donning a, a BCD. We do those things over and over and over and over again. Because every time we go back and we reteach it and we have the, the, the participant reperform it, we have a conversation about, hey, you're going to get a little bit of stressed. What I want you to do is focus and breathe. So it's very important to practice those techniques on a regular basis and not just in the emotional state. So we'll take someone back to something that they've done consistently and been successful at it. Mass clearing. Regulator recovery. And if they can focus on that calming down on a task that they're proficient with, then when I advance them into something that they're not familiar with, taking the BCD off, taking all of their gear off, including mask and fins, swim to the surface, sit up there for 30 seconds, have a nice little conversation, and then dive back down in 13 feet of water and replace all that gear. They've already learned those techniques for calming themselves. And then I can transfer that into when they're in traffic, when they're in a crowd, when they lose a cell phone, when their spouse doesn't answer the phone. Another part is focusing on inhaling and exhaling. We talked about breathing. Our flagship program is called Breathe just because of that. We ask the divers to concentrate on how the air makes them feel in that moment and notice how their body moves in response to the air. So when we're laying on the bottom, it looks like we've got divers just hanging out and sleeping. What they're doing is that they're noticing the air coming in from the regulator 
into their belly because we start teaching belly breathing, how that will make them rise because we're not going to overweight them. And maybe at this point they're doing fin pivots. Maybe at this point we've got them doing what all divers should do and be neutrally buoyant. And as they take that air in, they'll feel the rise and they'll feel the fall. How it makes their body feel, what their body does, how it moves. And at that point, we're now on the way to finding ways to prevent the amygdala hijack. I mean, there's other ways, right? I mean, there's other ways to learn to avoid triggers. There's other ways to stop the amygdala from having a chance to overrule. But, I mean, we focus on diving. That's, I mean, that's, that's where we're at, right? So, I mean, that's, that's what we do. When we look at how anxiety happens, it can really help you in understanding how to, how to manage that anxiety. So keep in mind that anxiety, you know, it's a physical response that we encounter in everyday life. The amygdala has a central role in the anxiety's response to stressful and arousing situations. It's the sole thing that's responsible for activating that fight-or-flight response. And that response helps people who are in immediate danger, and they react quickly so that they're safe and they're secure. But anxiety is something that can happen in everyday life. Some people manage it well, some people don't. And although we normally associate it with negative situations, it can also be a whole wide range of situations. Meeting a new boss meeting a new commander, going up and talking to someone for the first time. I used to have huge anxiety when it came to social situations like talking to someone of the opposite sex. But anxiety appears as the most common trait in our daily lives. When we're stressed, when we become nervous or hyper-responsive, it can be easy to anger or react or hide away. So, you know, we, we gave some examples, or I gave some examples earlier about, you know, being in a car or being a deer, right? So let's say that you're walking in the park. Let's say, let's say that, that, you're, that, you're, that you're walking through the park and all of a sudden a ball comes zipping at you. And this is an experiment that's been done with people who are not sport in, in, in sports type communities, right? Where baseballs and soccer balls are not part of that. What do you think they do? Well, it's obvious. They duck. All right? If someone throws a baseball at you at 90 miles an hour, I mean, literally, 90 miles an hour, most common thing to do is duck. Someone who's been trained to catch a ball at 90 miles an hour will catch it. High school level, College level, professional level catchers will catch a ball. A first baseman who has a, a ball whipped at him will catch it. A soccer ball comes flying at my head, I might try to catch it. I've got somebody in my life that might try to, to headbutt it. I mean, that's because that's what they've been trained. They've, they've moved that response from the amygdala into the frontal cortex. Cricket ball comes flying at you. I mean, and I think a cricket ball is actually pretty hard. I've never played cricket. I want to learn. 
But, I mean, a cricket ball comes wailing at you. I'm getting out of the way. I mean, it looks to me, if, if, it's what I, if, if a cricket ball is what I think it is, to me it looks like a croquet ball. I, I could be wrong. I mean, I don't know because, again, I've never played the sport. But, you know, I, I might, if, if it's what I think it is, I'm moving out of the way. I'm not going to try to kick it, okay? It's that amygdala that's going to save my life. Now, somebody who's been trained to catch a cricket ball or a baseball or a softball or whatever, they're going to move and they're either going to, they're going to catch it or they're going to hit it with a bat. I don't mind sharing the story that I had a 0-0-0 batting average my eighth grade year. Why? Because I was afraid of the ball. The amygdala would take over. A ball would get thrown at me. And I had not successfully trained myself as I was growing up through the years to move from peewee slow pitch to all out aggressive eighth grade going to take your head off fast pitch. I mean, I just, I, and I was deathly afraid of the ball. I would pray for walks. I'd pray to be able to bunt. I would close my eyes and swing at the ball. I sucked at baseball. Now, I was a great second baseman, and I was even a better center fielder. But, man, when it came to batting, man, that was not my game. But if you're walking through the park and suddenly a ball is about to hit your head, you've, you've got to do one of the following actions. Duck, freeze, or catch the ball. It's an automatic response. We retrained our brain as soldiers, marines, airmen, and sailors. Near ambush. What is the immediate action drill for a near ambush? Now, if you've not ever been involved in doing immediate action drills, your response might be to run away. You might say, I want to move towards fire, but you won't because you haven't trained your body to do that. And so you train over and over and over again. Immediate action drill for near ambush. You lay down a base of fire, pop smoke, move towards the fire. That's the immediate action drill. Straight out of the ranger handbook. Immediate action drill for, for incoming artillery. You take cover and then you move one terrain feature. Straight out, of, uh, straight out, of, well, at the time for me it was FM 7 8. I'm showing my age now, but that was the infantryman's handbook. So you have to retrain your brain. And just like what we did as soldiers, airmen, sailor, and marines, we retrained our brains. We have to do that now. Whether it's in a diving situation, which we have the advantage of working, reworking, remapping, rewiring your brain through diving and transferring that over into the non-diving civilian life. So, you're, you know, you may not be able to stop the amygdala hijack. You might not, not be able to prevent the amygdala hijack. But it takes a conscious effort to deactivate your amygdala and activate your frontal lobes. That's that logical part of your brain that says hit the ball. It says catch the ball. It says move towards enemy fire when in a near ambush. And when we feel threatened or we're significantly stressed, we need to be able to acknowledge how our body feels and what it's doing. And even if you fail at it, once you've calmed down, and I have to do this a lot because there's things that, that, that will get me, right? We're sitting at a... Philly Cheese Steak Shop yesterday in Baker City, Oregon. Called Philly's. Great Philly Cheese Steaks. By the way, 
if you're there, you have to tell them to get to put the peppers and onions. They don't realize a Philly cheesesteak is more than just steak and cheese. It actually has that stuff on it. But nonetheless, great steak. As we're sitting outside, a dump truck passes by and honks its horn for a bunch of kids. Man, I was, it's all I could do. I mean, I, I came out of my skin. I mean, it's right on top of me. All of a sudden, I hear the horn, and I mean, and I'm diving down. Now, after I calmed down and after I finished being pissed off at the, at the driver and recognized the situation, hey, these are local people. That's a local guy. He's saying hi to kids. Then I could start processing it logically. So even if you fail, consider the response that you had and start considering the response that you should have. Now, don't be embarrassed about it. Don't be shy. Because it happens, right? Don't be embarrassed. But it allows you to just catalog away more thoughtful and rational responses. During the height of your fight or flight response, breathing is a powerful tool. And that's what I did is I took a few moments to really work on my breathing. This is what we have to do with divers. Matter of fact, when I get ready to take a diver on a deep dive, and, they're, and they are anxious about it, right? We're, they've passed open water. Now they're doing their advanced dive. We're going to drop down to 90, 95 feet. We're going to follow the pipe in Lucky Peak, or maybe we're out on the, uh, we're going to dive the Odyssey down in Roatan. And you look down, and I mean, and the ship looks like a little speck, right? It's not something that you're used to. What I like to have divers do is we get ready to make a deep dive, put the snorkel in the mouth, and just breathe. Work on slowing down those responses. Just slow down and just breathe. Breathing is the most powerful tool that you can have. Think about the speed of your breath. Work to slow it down. Find calm, natural rhythms. That's why diving is so good for us. Because it allows us an opportunity that when all the world is just falling apart on us, we have a chance to slow down and just breathe. Focus on how your body feels as you inhale and you exhale and you regain control of yourself. After that response is passed, review what happened. See if you can recognize what the warning signs were. So now let's talk about when, when we do have divers, right? What are some things, and maybe you're a diver who's already been certified, and you're kind of like, you know, your instructor kind of like passed you through, even though they knew that you were, that you, you know, that they knew that you were, <laughs> you know, a, a stressful diver. I've got a diver in a private workshop I'm doing right now on advanced diving. And she told me that, her, di- her, her instructor passed her but said that she should always die with somebody who can help calm her down. Well, that's great. What happens if that diver stops diving or if that diver, something happens with that diver, now she's in a stressful situation. She's going to freak out and not able to save her dive buddy or herself. So let's talk about some ways we stop diving anxiety. If you've already got it, and if you're a student or if you're one of those poor souls that got passed on through, 
you know, just through through the numbers, and you know, and, and your instructor passed you anyway. So number one, understand the problem. Understand what's going on. Is it because it's a deep dive? Is it because I can't find, you know, I I, you know, my my mask is filling up, or I can't find the deflator, or I've got too much weight on, or I'm in a dry suit for only the fourth or fifth time since I got certified in a dry suit. Understand what the problem is. Define the problem. Work through the problem. It's like I say at the end of every podcast, as long as you've got air, you can resolve 90% of your problems. As long as you've got air, you're all right. You know, as long as you're not rocketing to the surface or sinking to the bottom or a few other things, as long as you've got air, you can solve 90% of your problems. It's like that in diving and it's like that in the non-diving world. Something we're really big on is increasing your confidence with repeated easy dives. When we do our Thursday night dives, I usually put the depth limit at about 40 feet. That's about where the thermocline is. It's where it starts getting really cold. Now, we've got a lot of adventurous divers that go on down, but it's dark, and it's cold, and it's mucky, and, it's, and, and everything. And I've got a lot of divers who are fairly new. Why not build their confidence in an area where they can still see stuff? They haven't hit the, the thermocline where all of a sudden it just goes to black. They can see more stuff. They can see baby bass. They can see catfish. They can see carp. They can find stuff that people have lost off of shore. Let's keep the dives really easy. How about this? Dive with a supportive instructor or dive master. And in Neptune, we actually have dive coaches that help out. Yeah, we've got people who don't mind taking on new divers. Hey, let's go hang out. Yeah, we're going to keep the dive about 25, 30 feet. Yes, it's going to be mucky. Yes, it's going to be cold. Hey, I can help you get your dry suit on. Find somebody who's supportive, a coach, a dive master, an instructor. I don't care if you have to pay them. I, I gladly pay to be guided in places that I'm not familiar with. I mean, I've done some Tahoe dives, but I have no qualms about paying someone to, dive, to, to guide me around Tahoe. I've been teaching since 1998. I've been been a diver since 1994. I'll pay for a guide. And if there's no charge, I'm going to make sure I tip them. If I go to a body of water that I'm not familiar with or I'm not sure about, no problem. Man, when I go to Hawaii, I I love doing beach dives. But before I do any of those beach dives, I make sure I do it by signing up for a trip or hiring a guide. Because they can show me the ins and outs. They can show me the, the cool stuff. I mean, if you go out with me, I'm going I'm to have you playing with, with bass. I'm going to have you hand-feeding bass most of the time because of where we dive. I go to other places, and they show me dragonfish and, and boxfish mating and moray eels. I go to the Pacific Northwest. I have no problem buying lunch or dinner for somebody that shows me wolf eels and octopus. So dive with a supportive instructor or DM or maybe a, a dive coach. Don't rush diving down. Nothing wrong with hanging out on the surface, breathing compressed air, blowing bubbles on the surface. Does it take away from your tank? Yes. Does it calm you down? Absolutely. Dive with your own equipment. Oh my God, I hate rental equipment. If you certify with me, I don't do rental 
I don't do rental stuff. I don't loan. I don't loan out fins. I don't loan out mask. When you sign up to dive with me, you get mask, fins, snorkel, and boots. You get a back plate. You get a weight belt. You get a wing that goes along with that and a harness. That way you're diving your gear. You basically get everything that you need except for wetsuit, weights, and a tank. And if you want that, I can get that for you too. But that way you are learning with your stuff and you're diving your gear. When you go on vacation, take your gear. I don't care if it is a six-pound backplate. I dive with mine. I take mine on, on the plane all the time. But dive with solid equipment. Dive with stuff that you trust. Diving gear is one of the things that you don't want to buy the cheap stuff. It's like, it's like trying to bargain a tattoo artist. If you go for the lowest bid on a tattoo, you're going to get a really crappy tattoo. Dive with solid gear. Always adjust for narcosis. Narcosis can stress some people out. Other people kind of like, like me, I kind of get a little too relaxed on it. But make sure that you adjust for narcosis. Mitigate your cold water shock. Now, I don't have a lot of people get anxious over that. I have people that kind of get a little flustered over it. I get a lot of uh, little screams and shouts. But if you're not a cold water diver, if you've been a warm water diver and suddenly you come up to where I'm at, uh, yeah, just let a little bit of water in and kind of let that thing warm up. And I'm okay if you pee in a wetsuit as long as it's your wetsuit. A big one is prevent overheating, though. Because we are in the high desert area. It gets, I mean, today it's like 106 where I'm at. And if I'm going to do, go do a deep dive, it means i got to put a lot of underwear on and a dry suit. And when you got all that bulky gear and you got that weight on, you got, you know, you got the weight to offset it. And then now you're walking down a thousand steps, crawling over rocks or whatever else that you have to do. It can get really stressful. Oh, and let's add on top of that that maybe you have a dive buddy who's not as squared away as you. That can add to the stressful situation. And that's where we have to go back into things like our breathing techniques. That's where we have to go back into, you know, maybe we don't put all of our gear on until we're down at the water side. Find ways to, to mitigate the stress for yourself. Again, the best way to prevent that amygdala hijack is to understand what it is that's triggering you. If you know that being in hot situations is going to trigger you. If you know that doing a deep dive is going to trigger you. If you know that getting seasick is going to trigger you. You have to either work your way around it or you avoid those situations. Hey, diving is a fantastic sport, recreation, lifestyle, hobby, however you want it to classify it. It's a way for us to submerge ourselves into the underwater realm. When you think about all the things that water does for us, it swaddles us, it comforts us, it cleans. In some walks of faith, it baptizes and cleanses. It's been a way to bridge continents together. But for us, it's a great way to heal one dive at a time. 
And remember, as long as you've got air, you're all right.